All right, well, let's start by reading our passage. It comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as I preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If I had to summarize what Paul is saying to Timothy up to this point in the book, it would be something like this. Beloved Timothy, my son, you have a holy calling on your life. And that calling is to pass along this faith that was passed on to you, the gospel. It's your most important task. Don't be ashamed, Timothy, because the task I know is being met with much opposition, suffering, my imprisonment, but share in that suffering and be confident in your reward. If you remember from two weeks ago when Jeff taught, um, he was saying that we ought to work hard, strengthened by the grace of God to pass along what has been entrusted to us, just like a soldier, like a farmer, and there is future reward coming for that. Today in this passage, I think Paul wants to encourage us that we should endure because uh, this work that we're doing of passing along the gospel is not futile, but God will bring about his intended results despite the obstacles because he is faithful. I'll say that again. God will bring about his intended results despite the obstacles because he is faithful. So Paul starts here in the passage by bringing up two pieces of gospel information, the good news. He says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as I preached in my gospel. Two things. Jesus rose from the dead, which he predicted that he would do. And he was descended from David. Well, what does that mean? Well, to a, a Jewish audience, this would maybe be more apparent, but Jesus is the king that was promised to Israel in 2 Samuel, cha 2 Samuel chapter 7, who would come from David's offspring and who would rule forever. So it was predicted and it happened. That's a key part of the gospel. This anointed king has come just as God has promised. So what I want to point out about these two pieces of, of gospel information is that both of them were predicted, both seemed hopeless, but both came to be just as promised. Or, as I was saying at the beginning, God will bring about his intended result despite the obstacles. And we can be assured of that in the future because he has a proven track record in these things. That's why Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. So everything has happened according to God's plan, and therefore we can know everything will happen according to his plan. So God's plan will not be stopped. Paul goes on in 
verse 9 to say that the gospel is the reason for my suffering. Uh, if there are a couple of things that people are most likely to reject about the gospel, they're the two things that he mentioned. Jesus raised from the dead. Well, that's really hard to believe. And that Jesus is the, the king of the world, including the king of you. And a lot of people don't want to believe that. So for preaching these things, uh, Paul has been bound in chains as a criminal. But as I said at the beginning, God will bring about his intended results despite the obstacles. So, verse 9 at the end, the word of God, he says, is not bound. I love this. A great example of this Paul gives in another letter of his to the Philippians. In Philippians 1, chapters 12 through 18, Paul is kind of speaking of his imprisonment, and he says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And then he says, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, listen, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So the circumstances of Paul being bound for preaching the word of God does not bind the word of God, but some are being emboldened by that very fact. He also tells in Philippians how uh, he says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So there's some who are trying to, trying to preach the gospel out of wrong motives, does that restrict the word of God? No. Paul says, so what? Hey, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. In the worst of circumstances, God will bring about his intended results. It seems that even um, about this time of Paul's imprisonment when he's writing Timothy, he may have had the opportunity to preach the gospel to Caesar himself. So, so to the entire Gentile world in a way. So the word of God, despite the imprisonment, despite the obstacles, is not bound. Even us reading this letter, we see, ironically, that the imprisonment and the death sentence for Paul didn't stop the word. It actually has become the word of God. His word isn't bound. Um, a little side note. If we consider that the word of God isn't bound in the context of the rest of this book, that we are to pass on that word of God to the next generation, we can infer something from that. That as we carry out this hard work of passing on the good deposit, we are in a job that is guaranteed to succeed. We're on an unstoppable mission. We're fighting a winning battle, right? That's why Paul had said in chapter one, he said, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed that Jesus raised from the dead, the promised king of David with this proven track record. I know who I'm believed, I believe, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So he says, I preach the word unashamedly because I know it can't be stopped. So cool. Because of this, he says in verse 10, or therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, 
that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Why do I endure everything? Because God keeps his promises and I know his mission cannot be stopped. But it isn't just this idea of, well, I want to be on the winning team, so logically I should be on this one who's guaranteed to win. I should be on that side. But Paul is giving here also some of the heart behind why he would desire to endure. And he says it's for the sake of the elect. Well, who are the elect? The elect are those who have been chosen by God to be his people, chosen by God to be saved. That's what the word means, chosen or elected, right? I know election is a controversial issue uh, that God chooses some, uh, but just sticking with scripture, I'll read from Ephesians 1 verse 4, Paul's speaking to the church in Ephesus. He says, he chose us, God chose us in him, listen, before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then even here in this letter to 2 Timothy in the first chapter, in verse 8 and 9, we read that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, listen, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He saved us and called us and gave us his grace before time began. Now, are men held responsible to choose God still? Absolutely. But has God already chosen those who are his? Absolutely. And God's plan always happens. Now, I don't think this is the right passage to kind of plumb the depths of election and predestination. Paul's point is not primarily theological here. Like if you want to get into that, you can read from the book of Romans. But Paul's just simply expressing here his heart for all those who will believe through his word. Why endure all kinds of suffering then for the sake of the elect? that they also may obtain a salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I think it's here that we have to ask, do we comprehend how good our salvation is? Do we comprehend the weight of eternal glory? I've been thinking a lot like, many of you, about the war in Ukraine that's constantly in front of us on the news and all of the death that's surrounding that. I mean, we hear these death tolls of thousands of people. Uh, I've also been noticing in the news a lot of times, uh, in, in recent weeks even, a lot of mass shootings and just seeing, hey, there is death all around us. Some of you have experienced death much more closely than a news story, right? Why work so hard at passing along this faith? Why evangelism? Why open your mouth and subject yourself to all kinds of suffering? Because for those who will receive it, and some will, the elect, this message 
the gospel overcomes death. I was just recently watching the movie Risen, and the lead character, a Roman soldier, is driven in life by this idea of a day without death. A day without death. That's what I long for. And I think that's what I long for, and I think what you long for, is, is a day when there is no more death. Can you imagine that? Just try to imagine what that day would be like. You should try to. I think that's a good practice for us. And if we know with certainty that that day is coming, can we imagine not proclaiming the good news for the sake of all who will believe and can experience that? Paul says he's willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And remember this too, he's on a winning mission, right? Because the word of God cannot be stopped. So the mission isn't even futile. You know, it'd be one thing to endure suffering, just hoping that somebody's going to believe and find life in Jesus. But it's much more endurable, I would say, knowing that there are some out there whom God has chosen that he has assured will respond to the unstoppable word of God. So for their sake, and because we know it will happen for some, we endure. In verse 11, we get to uh, the saying that is trustworthy. This is one of five faithful sayings in the pastoral epistles. Some people think this was just kind of a common Christian saying. Maybe like we'd have today, I hear a lot, uh, disciples make disciples who make disciples. That's not quoting something from scripture, but it's a true and trustworthy statement. Or maybe from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, um, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, right? These are trustworthy statements popular in the church. Maybe this saying here in 2 Timothy is one of those. A lot of people think it was actually a hymn of that day of Paul and Timothy. Some people think it was something that was used in baptisms, like some verbiage that would be used as someone was being baptized or even at the, the funeral of um, somebody who was martyred. So those are maybe some possibilities, but it's, it's these four lines. First, if we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. So first, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Now the death uh, that he's most likely talking about here is not um, the uh, future death that we will have, but it's the, the present, uh, the death that we've already experienced when we were converted and when we were baptized. And the life that he's talking about here is our life now in Christ. Okay, so, so not necessarily when we die, we will then be resurrected in life to be with him, though that would be true as well. Um, but it's looking at this past event of conversion. The verb there in the passage to die is in the aorist tense, so kind of the past tense. Um, the language here is also very similar to how Paul talks about in other passages, baptism and conversion. Maybe the clearest parallel is Romans chapter six. It's very much like this. I'll read a few of those verses. Verse 4, we were buried with Christ by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised, we too might walk in newness of life. When? 
now in this life. Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And he says in verse 11 of Romans 6, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. When do we consider ourselves that way? Right now. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 11 of 2 Timothy 2. Um, Pretty much every time the New Testament mentions this idea of dying with Christ, It's always referring to baptism and and conversion or this idea of being dead to yourself or dead to sin. And if you imagine, like, again, for the sake of the elect, we can preach a message that offers freedom from that bondage and life in Christ. Secondly, he says in verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, this isn't the passage to fully flesh this out, but there will be there will come a day for those who endure when Christ returns and we will then rule with Christ. Did you know that? Um, I'll just read a couple of excerpts from Revelation. Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And then regarding those who are Um, ransomed from every tribe, language, people, and nation, Revelation 5.10. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, listen, and they shall reign on the earth. And then regarding to those, all who are alive in the eternal kingdom in Revelation 22, verse 5, they will reign forever and ever. The idea of humans reigning in the new heavens and the new earth, it shouldn't be all that surprising to us because that's how God set up Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before sin, right? It's let them have dominion over or rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and the livestock and everything else. They were made, Adam and Eve, we were made initially to rule the earth. And on a future day, in the absence of sin and in the absence of the limited short-term rule of Satan, we will rule with Christ again in righteousness, if we endure now. I think to reign with Christ is part of that eternal glory that he was talking about in verse 10, uh, which Paul, he wants that, he loves that idea, and he wants it so much for the sake of the elect, and for himself, and for Timothy, so he endures suffering now. The third line, uh, I think, is set in contrast with the second, where it says, but if we deny him, he also will deny us. Well, there's another motivation to endure, right? Um, To deny probably means here, we think it means like apostasy in its fullest sense, leaving the faith. Not like Peter's temporary denial of knowing Jesus just before Christ's death, which was forgiven, right? But this is speaking of someone who completely renounces their belief and trust in Jesus. And the result of that total denial of Christ is Christ's denial of you. Paul may be thinking of some of the the men actually that he's mentioned in the letter already. He'll mention later uh, in this very chapter. Um, There's a very direct parallel to from this passage to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, um, 
you'll be familiar with this verse. Everyone acknowledge everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But everyone who denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So when things get hard, Timothy, and to all believers, don't deny Christ, but endure. When we suffer for the gospel, and we're tempted to deny, when our mission seems futile, when the word of God seems like it's bound, or when God seems to delay in keeping his promises, don't deny, but endure. And then finally, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now there's two ways that that could be taken. It could be similar to the third line, like a warning. If you're unfaithful to God, well, God's going to be faithful to himself and he's going to judge you because he's faithful to his character and he has to do that. He has to judge sin. Or it could be taken, I think this is more likely, that when we lack faith, when we are stumbling, when we have temporary unfaithfulness, God is still faithful to accomplish his work in us in spite of us. Scripture almost always, when it's talking about God's faithfulness, it's bringing it up positively for the benefit of believers. It's not in the context of judgment. Oh, God is so faithful. Look how he is judging, right? So it's probably similar what he's talking about, this faithlessness. This maybe is like Peter's denial of Christ. It's not complete apostasy, but it's something that we all at various times experience, our faithlessness. And the last thing that I want to point out Uh, and and hopefully this will pull it all together, is that there's kind of an unexpected shift in this final line of of the passage today. Um, The flow of thought and kind of the parallelism of this trustworthy saying, we might expect it to say something like this. If we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he also will be faithless to us. That would be the flow of it, right? In each of the first three lines, the actions of us and God, they kind of mirror each other. His death, our death, life, life, rain, rain, deny, deny. So some things that we do have this kind of matched result from God, or you could say, if this, then that, and they're kind of the same. He lives, if he lives, then we live. If he reigns, then we reign. If we deny him, then he denies us. But here's the switch. If we are faithless, then he remains faithful. See, God's faithfulness doesn't depend on ours. If this, then that. If this, then that. If this, then that. But if this, it doesn't matter because that is always true. God's faithfulness isn't a result of some if-then equation. God's character always equals faithfulness. For Paul says he cannot deny himself. So if I fail, he remains faithful because he is faithful. If I fall into temptation, he remains faithful because he is faithful. If I lacked boldness today to proclaim the gospel, he remains faithful because he is faithful. If anything... He remains faithful because he is faithful. In John's revelation, 
chapter 19, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful. William Mount says, God's divine faithfulness is immutable, meaning he cannot change. Listen, for God not to be faithful would be to cease being himself. If God weren't faithful, he wouldn't be God. Y'all, no matter what we do, we can't mess him up. If y'all are struggling with your, your faithfulness to the Lord, it will not mess up his plan. Our slip-ups, past, present, and future, aren't going to change God's plan for us in the advancement of his unstoppable gospel for the elect. God isn't thwarted by our faithlessness. Isn't that encouraging? We can't mess up God's plan. He will do what he wants regardless. And doesn't that just line up with the rest of the passage? His plans are unstoppable. I said at the beginning, our work of passing on this gospel, it's not futile. God will bring about his intended results despite the obstacles because he is faithful. So we see against all skepticism, against all laws of science, Jesus rose from the dead as he said he would. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. God is faithful. After hundreds of years of the people of God waiting for their Messiah, the king has arrived as God said he would. Remember Jesus Christ, the offspring of David. God is faithful. Even in Paul's suffering and imprisonment, the gospel still goes forward. The word of God is not bound because God is faithful. And even when we, his children, are presenting obstacles to the gospel because of our faithlessness, he is still accomplishing his plan because he is faithful. Verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So, so what shall we do? If we trust God is faithful, and he's given us good reason to believe he is, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. If we trust that God is faithful, how should we live? Should we sit back and say, well, the elect, they're going to be saved no matter what, so why do I need to say anything? Do we say, well, God's word, it's going to go forward no matter what, so I can just kind of kick back and do nothing? Well, it says right here, I can be faithless and he's still going to be faithful. No. Endure everything for the sake of the elect. Pass along this gospel at all costs because it leads to salvation in Christ Jesus and eternal glory. And trust God's faithful word that if you endure, you will rise and you will reign with him. So because he is faithful, endure. And here's the crazy thing. If you're one of the elect, you will endure because God is faithful. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it.